0: You're listening to SBS News.
1: A year behind schedule, the 2023 Asian Cup is finally underway in 2024. The COVID pandemic saw China withdraw from its hosting duties, allowing Qatar to beat other bids, including from Australia, to become the new host. The wealthy gulf country is hosting the event little more than a year after it hosted what FIFA president Gianno Infantino called the best ever World Cup. As a third-time host of the region's premier football event and the defending champions, Qatar is hoping to build on the legacy of that 2022 event. Hassan Al-Khawari from the organising committee says so far everything is going to plan.
2: We want to keep the momentum and we want to keep the same level what we provided in the World Cup. We treated the, the, the two tournaments in the same same method and same way. We hope that we will have... An Asian tournament with a World Cup flavour, let's say. We are using around nine, sta- seven, nine stadiums. Seven of them are stadium that have been used during the World Cup.
1: A total of 24 teams will play 51 games across nine stadiums over the month-long tournament. Al-Khwari says the appetite from fans is very healthy.
2: The numbers and the figures are very impressive for us. Uh, we sold around 900,000 tickets until now. Uh, we are welcoming them to come and, fa- and uh, uh, cheer for their team, be with us, enjoy the, ta- uh, the time in Qatar and have a great
1: journey. Qatar has pledged to donate the revenue from ticket sales to support Palestinians through medical and food aid in Gaza. Emeritus Professor at Western Sydney University, David Rowe, researches the intersection between sports politics and culture. He says wealthy countries in the Middle East, including Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, are emerging as new forces in global sport.
0: playing of major sports events in the Middle East is becoming normalised in some ways. Consider more broadly what is going on in the field of sport, not just Qatar, which will be, um, after this event, hosting qualifying under 23 tournament for the Paris Olympics later this year. We've also got Saudi Arabia making huge inroads into global sport, not just in football, though it, it will be hosting the 2034 FIFA World Cup. Interestingly, the only other contender for host was Australia, which didn't even bother to uh, apply uh, because I think it realized that it, it, it had a very little chance. If you look at uh, say, Saudi Arabia, it's enormous investment in football and in its own league, involvement in the, in the English Premier League football, live golf. There's talk of a, uh, a rival to the Australian Open in some ways, quite possibly, that it will offer an awful lot of money to take the Grand Slam away from Australia or certainly attract a number of players for its uh, pre-tournament.
1: Human rights concerns and boycotts were front and centre during the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, including the issue of migrant worker deaths during the construction of the stadiums, at an estimated cost of $9.7 billion. Qatar World Cup chief Hassan Althawadi admitted during the 2022 event that between 400 and 500 migrant workers died as a result of work done on projects connected to the tournament. A Guardian analysis of data from government sources found at least 6,500 migrant workers died in Qatar in the nine years until 2020 while the stadiums were built. The workers were from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. More than a year after the World Cup, Human Rights Watch says there's been no redress for the underpayment and deaths of migrant workers who built the stadiums which are now being used for the Asian Cup. Dr Steve Georgiakis, Senior Lecturer on Sports Studies at the University of Sydney, says one reason why there's been less mention of those issues with this event is due to the narrow geographical focus of the tournament.
3: Most of the nations that objected to the uh, human rights, the Qatari human rights, were countries from the advanced Western economies. Uh, Most of the European countries, uh, uh, the US and a few other nations, this is the Asian Football Confederation and the most powerful bloc there are actually the Middle Eastern countries themselves. So that's why we haven't heard too much.
1: He says the war in Gaza does loom over the event in region. And for Qatar, it's being seen as a peace broker in the conflict, having mediated deals for a temporary ceasefire, hostage exchange and aid. The conflict has also meant there's been less attention with the Asian Cup on what's happened to migrant workers. Jarkas says untangling sports and politics can be tricky.
3: When you can't really separate the human rights stuff from the global sporting events, but the more that they invest in sport, the more powerful they become in controlling world sports, such as a business. So, you know, fewer and fewer people will ask questions about the human rights. Um, but on the flip side, this could be attempt by the Middle Eastern countries to come into the world fold and really become a globalised community.
1: Professor David Rose says the term sportswashing has been used in the past in reference to oppressive governments using sporting events to legitimise themselves and overshadow their human rights abuses. But he says it's better to think of it more broadly as sports diplomacy, the strategic use of sports as a political tool to project a
0: nation's global image. Sportswashing its a term that has to be handled with care. First that Pretty much all countries use it to a greater or lesser extent. But secondly, I think we have to be careful that we don't underplay the economic issues here. So we're talking about petro-states, large, resource-based and rich nations in the Middle East who realise, of course, that um, fossil fuel future isn't looking so great. So how else are they going to to make money? And so they, you know, both Qatar and Saudi Arabia, for example, and the UAE, they all have, as part of their planning, economic planning, a move away from fossil fuels into um, entertainment, information, sport, and so on.
1: He says the Asian Cup does come under the governance of FIFA, which released its first human rights policy in 2017. That document commits the organisation to protect human rights and remedy failures when they occur, in accordance with the United Nations' guiding principles on business and human rights. Dr Tom Heenan at Monash University researches and teaches the topics of sports and culture. He says he's noticed less attention on human rights concerns in Qatar with the Asian Cup versus the World Cup in 2022, and that's a concern.
2: It raises questions really about how seriously we do take human rights issues when it comes to sport, uh, when we ignore things like an Asian Cup. Uh, but we'll um, we'll uh, really raise them when there's a World Cup.
1: He says athletes are already speaking out about human rights concerns, including the Socceroos who released a video in the lead-up to the World Cup in Qatar raising concerns about the treatment of migrant workers and the criminalisation of LGBTIQ people in Qatar. Heenan says there's a role for consumers and sports fans to consider these issues, which he says will help improve the accountability and governance in sports. The players
2: themselves have, have stepped in here and, and have been um, all led the way in this. I think as a country, we consume sport. We don't, we don't think of the political aspects behind it. We don't, we don't look at what's occurring in other countries and the issues that may, may compromise our viewing of that sporting event. We choose it just as a product we consume. And we have to be more aware, as with other products, what's involved in the making of that product
1: news